0: Good morning. You know, I was initially a little stressed because I have the most notes I've ever had for a sermon, but Terry preached half of it, so <laughs> um, we're, we're doing good on time, I think. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah, so let me pray and we can, we can get in. Lord, thank you for this morning. Um, just continue to bring joy just through worship and, and through what we've experienced so far. Just be present and stirring in our hearts and, and, and what we will see in your word and what you, we see you're doing in our lives and in the world right now. Um, so, Lord, we trust you at this time. We give it up to you. Um, yeah, in your name. Amen. All right. So, uh, man, there's a lot of timeliness, I think, that we've seen with this series uh, personally, but also communally. So, if you remember. We began the series, like, end of February, early March, and, like, the first chapter of Isaiah is God just bringing, like, bringing judgment, and, like, this is going to be your future, because you have not obeyed what I've called you to do. Um, this is what you have disregarded, what you have not fulfilled in the way you followed me, and then two weeks after that, lockdown happens, you know, uh, stock market goes way down, and we're like... Oh, crap. <laughs> um, and there's been other passages with that, I think very consistently with the timeline of this year, that, that really connects what God is speaking to the nation of Israel in the text, but also what God is speaking to his people in America, yes, but also around the world, who are experiencing a lot of the same effects of the pandemic, um, and I think the same thing applies to today, and what I found was really interesting was that about a year ago, I preached a sermon on pruning, and today, I am preaching a sermon on refining. So, all right, Lord, thank you. Um, And I also think about, like, man, what has happened since that sermon, and I remember preaching that sermon personally, having gone through uh, some pruning myself, and kind of being at the end of it, like, man, God is... God is good. Like, he's really brought me through this. I'm like, all right, maybe we got some smooth sailing. And that smooth sailing looked like three months, and then it was <laughs> back into it. And and so this year has been that same process. And so I felt like beginning of lockdown, like March through May, like I was doing really good. You know, like hated Zoom, got really tired of that. I think everyone did. But then I was going through the summer, like, man, just really Um, enjoying intimacy with the Lord, and we had the men's advance in July, which was um, a ruckus, and it was great. And then when we hit the fall, that's when the tension finally came in for me. And so these last few months has been a lot of this refining. And so I'm, I'm speaking to you this morning not as one who has gotten past it. I'm still in it. And I think likewise, many of us are in that same place. But I'm coming to you today as a pastor and, and brother, bringing encouragement and, and hopefully some relief to where we are. So, we have questions when we go through all of this. like, alright God, what are you doing? We have our expectations of, of what this year should have looked like or what our lives in general should look like, pandemic or not. Um, And so this passage, I think, speaks into that. Um, And so as a quick recap, we know Israel's been exiled. They've been removed from the promised land into Babylon. And this exile took place over the course of 70 years. So if you think for their perspective, they have 70 2020s that they've lived through. There's a generation who has lived in Babylon and all they have known is 2020. They have not known relief. It's always been in hostile territory. And the Lord gives them hope. But as we just heard, it's in very hard words. He says in verse 9 through 11 For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. Good. That I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So in order to understand this, what he's saying to them, what he's saying to us, we have to get to the foundation. That foundation being God doing everything for his name's sake. That's a sermon series in and of itself. I'm going to scratch the surface and hopefully provide a path for us to dig deeper on our own and for that to be a part of how we grow with the Lord in this season. But to get into it together, um, this is a common thread throughout the whole Bible. This isn't just uh, particular to this passage. Like If you do a phrase search, just Google it, you're going to come up with so many Different examples in just about every book of the Bible of how God is saying, I'm doing this for my name's sake. And it's actually a good thing. So a few examples, Isaiah 43.7, I preached a number of weeks ago, that we are created for his glory. Psalm 106.8, that we are saved for his namesake, that he might make make known his mighty power. Ephesians 1.4-6, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself, As sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. In Psalm 23, we know this well. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. There's tension in this. I think that a lot of us can initially feel, if we haven't gotten into these passages or particularly how we're feeling this morning. Because we can pose the question of, well, does God do everything for his glory or does he love and bless us? The answer to that question is yes. It is both. His loving us, his love that he shows and manifests towards us is founded upon him seeking his glory. And that's a really good thing, because even though we can squirm and we can think, man, God sounds really self-absorbed, because the way we read it is is as if one of us were to say those things. If one of us were to say, or myself were to say, worship me, give me praise, I will deliver you, you would think I'm crazy and very inappropriate, because I can't actually do that. Because even though, you know, we all have strengths and whatever, with that, like I'm not that great. And even my strengths are not good enough to supply what you need. So for me to call for you to do that would be inappropriate because I can't deliver. I can't actually give it to you. But God is different than us because he can deliver upon those things because unlike me, unlike us, he is perfect and pure and strong and loving and just And he's the only one who can do that. No one else has that kind of resume. And that means he's actually worthy of praise. It doesn't mean that he just has those attributes. It means he's actually worthy. And the beautiful truth of this is that it's a good thing when he exalts himself. Because, get this, when when God exalts himself for all of us to see He's giving us the thing we actually need. He's giving us a source of security, a source of pleasure, all kinds of satisfaction. When He exalts Himself, it's an act of love. In that is grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion. And this this whole thing of God doing all these things for His glory, for us and the whole world to see and, and place their trust in Him is the foundation of the gospel. It's His ultimate plan to bring glory to His name. And so we see this in Isaiah 48. Um, he begins kind of at the beginning of what we would say the gospel story in verse 8. He says that from before birth we were called rebels. People who did not want to submit to, to Him, to see Him as Lord, to follow Him, to to have anything to do with Him. And you see that in the world today. I don't really need to give any examples. You see the fallen uh, creation. You see broken people. You get it. But God responds in grace, and we see that manifestly in Jesus saving His people. Verse 6, The Lord announces to you, New things. Things you would not believe if he were to tell you. And we see this through Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament, is that God is giving us all these different prophecies, sprinkled throughout and and connected throughout all the books. And it's building this profile of a Messiah who would one day come and redeem God's people for himself. And we see this here in a few chapters, and I'm, I'm excited when we get to that. When we get to to dive into the suffering servant. A very explicit picture of who this Messiah is and is one who would come to restore and reconcile rebels and broken people to God by dying in their place. And we see that in Jesus. We see this in Him living among sinners, redeeming, him by, redeeming them by His death on the cross. And the anger, we see in verse 9, the, the anger that God said He would defer from us, he actually defers from us and places it upon Jesus. And so that wrath towards sin is dealt with, it's, it's paid for, so that we would have freedom in Jesus. And then through that, it's not just a redemption, it's also a filling with his Spirit, that God's Spirit resides within the people of God, and he remains in his people to guide and transform them. And so all the while, God's people follow him, it's continually bringing praise to his name, by the Spirit. How does God do this? The means. And where we're really going to dwell today is what's called the furnace of affliction. What is the furnace? What we can plainly see, it's, it's a process of renewal for God's people. A year ago when I was preaching on pruning, a, a similar imagery for this. John 15, you have the vine and the branches. Jesus being the vine, us being the branches. And the Father pruning the branches that bear fruit so that they bear more fruit. It's not a, a discipline issue, it's, it's a fruit bearing issue. And God's going to bear more fruit by trimming, but it requires cutting, it requires pinching, so that the plant and the branches would thrive more. Here we see the furnace, and the furnace just isn't here. It's mentioned elsewhere how, how God um, brought um, Israel out of Egypt, which is known as the, the iron furnace, into the promised land. But here he, he's doing a similar thing, and then also it's mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 1, where faith is seen as being refined by fire. It's being tested. That is the Christian life. It's not a one-off. It, it is the experience. And so in this kind of imagery, the Lord uses precious metals to describe us. And so the thing to know with precious metals, I don't think any of us are, are smithies or anything like that. These still come smithies. That's old, old English. But um, The metals, gold and silver particularly, have impurities on the surface, within, um, and in order for those to be crafted and purified, they need um, to be refined. And the way to refine metals is for them to be melted down and for the impurities to be um, removed. It literally needs to happen over heat. Uh, Quick Google search, silver melts at 1,763 degrees Fahrenheit, gold melts at 1,948 degrees Fahrenheit. Hot. And so, the thing to, to know with this is, it's, it's through this process that they're refined, but to also know that it's, they go through this process to reflect more accurately what they are. Similarly, our sin cannot coexist with a faithful life to the Lord. And so His Spirit, His ministry, is to work out all of those impurities within us. And so, as the Lord said, we're not refined literally by going over an open flame. It's a spiritual refining. God, so God is doing this. And He makes it obvious Well, let me back up. The purification that God does within his people, its aim is to be obvious so that the world would see that God is actually real. That there's a reason why our lives look differently and why we are going through what we're going through and experiencing what we are. And this isn't just a 21st century church thing. This is a history of the entire church thing. And so for us, likewise with the precious metals, to know this process of being refined, and, and maybe we don't ask for it, uh, we, we don't think we ask for it, but it's really what we're asking for when we say, God, make me more like you. It's not like us right now. And so when we desire those things, it's, it's God bringing us through the fire. doesn't mean it's easy. We literally have to be brought to a melting point in order to be refined. We have to be brought to the end of ourselves in order to be completely dependent upon the Lord. So what does the furnace actually look like? A list of things here. Um, One, the furnace looks like afflictions. It looks like disease, for one, um, any kind of illness, disabilities. And and the main goal of that, um, ultimately, to humble us, um, and through that, to draw near to the Lord. And I want to add to that, like, it doesn't mean we live hopelessly or to acquiesce to the issue. This is just, this is what life will always be, living in in a hopeless way and and not to have it be our identity either. This is who I am. But it's meant to, to push us to a greater hope and identity in Christ. And to know as well, and there's tension with this, we can still ask for healing. And God does still heal. Sometimes we know the illness is, is our lot. right? That is what we have. But at the same time, not to live in defeat. Not to let that be a hindrance to your relationship with the Lord, but to let it actually launch you into a greater relationship with the Lord. But afflictions can also look like death. Um, plain and simple, just the greatest picture of, of brokenness in the world. Death. Being separated from loved ones. Um, and I think most of us know this. Um, it, it will Bring us into a, a depth of, of loss and grief um, and bring us into some of the darkest seasons of life. I don't think we're foreign to that. Also looks like trials. The furnace looks like trials. Jesus warned us of the persecution that would come if we followed him. It's the cost of discipleship that we would be treated as He was treated. If we were faithful to him, you see that in Paul's list of trials going hungry, being shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead, slandered, bitten by a snake, and the thorn of flesh that he refers to in 2 Corinthians that kept him from being conceited. But we have our list as well when it comes to trials, and a lot of it is real. A lot of it, sometimes, you know, we can bring upon ourselves by our own foolishness, but. Sometimes it is genuine. It is a genuine trial. We see this, man, I mean, just even this year, like my own life and conversations in the church and just hearing in general from people just the levels of relational strife this year. Um, division in marriages. Divisions in the church. Division in families between parents and children. Friendships being, riffed, or being torn apart. And, and through those rifts, we see greater anger and sadness. Um, in general, just people opposing you and what you are standing for, either in the faith or, or, or whatever it might be. Um, last week, I heard from a pastor in Denver who has been leading a church there for 10 years, and he said, in my entire time in ministry, in 2020, has been, like, people have been the most mean in his church and to him. It's, I mean, that's saying something. And I think we would, would agree in, in some ways. Um, the trials can also just be plain old questioning purpose. Like, what are you here for? Questioning your career, having fear of the future and, and decisions and choices that you have to make, and how that just produces higher and higher levels of anxiety and stress. It looks like doubt. And you have some really big issues on your plate right now. And you're really wondering if God's going to come through. And if you're honest, you're like, I don't don't think so. Because I haven't seen a good track record so far. Is he... Faithful to provide. Will he heal? Will he come through and provide for me? Will he actually sustain me in this? Because it feels like he's not? Trial can also look like isolation. Just being disconnected. Um, man, I think we feel that this year. <sighs> um, looks like spiritual opposition. I mean, the last time I preached a couple weeks ago, we're just getting into spiritual warfare. That is a very uh, real factor that there is a spiritual war that will bring persecution and trials to your life. And uh, what's been referred to and experienced many times throughout church history is called just the dark night of the soul. Um, A a very, very deep spiritual depression um, where you just feel that God's love is distant. Many, um, many giants of the faith went through this. Um, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, many others for over the course of 2,000 years. I mean, David, my goodness. Um, And I'm sure you have your list right now and you can add many other things. I know, but what's important isn't just to have the list, but it's, it's to understand what our response is, because as a Christian, the furnace is going to happen. It will be inevitable, but what will be your response? What are you going to do? What are you going to say to God, and what are you going to do with your life? A couple buckets, maybe we will fall into. Response one, we try to avoid the furnace. We avoid because of fear. We see what, what Jesus has demonstrated and calls us into, and we turn the other way and run. We hate hard conversations, right? We have to deal with people's weaknesses, our weaknesses, and we risk the chance of people hating us and being misunderstood. And, you know, the justification for that is you don't want to be hurt. And, right, no one wants to be hurt. No one wants to experience more chaos. And so the reality is then we just settle for surface conversations that avoid any kind of tension, any kind of um, conflict, and not letting people into our own deeper problems. And with that is really just a lack of boldness. And I think a way of, of pinpointing that is, what is the consistent confession? Um, or one consistent confession might be, as you're with people, it's like, man, I just struggle to share the gospel. It's a level of fear. Or man, I just struggle to build relationships with anyone who's just not a Christian or even other Christians. It's avoiding the furnace. But we can also avoid it because of comfort taking the path of least resistance it's 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 us constructing lives that essentially we can live with or without jesus like if if our faith was not an actual component of our daily life not much would change we see what jesus calls us into we alter the list we can sacrifice not everything but we sacrifice what we don't care about or what doesn't hurt to give away or just doing enough church enough christian things you know not opening up our homes to people you know covid stuff aside because people are messy we're messy literally in our homes and spiritually messy. Ministry is inconvenient. God does not promise that ministry is always going to be smooth sailing. God does not promise that ministry among believers is always going to be easy. It's going to be hard. We can also respond to the furnace by loathing it. A lot of this, I'm just sharing my own sin with you. So, um, the loathing of the furnace can be caused by comparison, by comparing our lives to those who we think have it better—the church that has it better, the ministry that has it better, the family unit that has it better, the marriage that has it better, the college experience that has it better the retirement experience that has it better. And we build narratives. We think God has it out for us. You know, at times, feeling like, man, it just feels like God is that little kid with the magnifying glass and you're the ant. We think God doesn't love us as much. And we try to reason or understand like why do they have an easier path? And my warning to you is or encouragement, don't do that. Because that is almost always a lie. Someone can have great social media posts can have a great front, but there is always struggles. There is always issues behind a facade, behind good graphics, behind good presentation, behind good branding. There are always struggles. But when we get into that comparison cycle, that just leads to despair. It leads to anger, it leads to cynicism, it leads to angst. And we're left asking God, why are you doing this? I thought what you called me to do was actually going to work out. Because you affirmed the call on my life. You presented this to me as easy as possible, so therefore, I should have walked into it. And I did. Why isn't it working? There has to be another way, right? And so then we, what a pastor is called giraffe syndrome, you have the long neck, you're kind of looking out, what, what things could I do? What other things could I do that are going to be easier, that maybe I won't have to deal with as much people, I'm not going to have to deal with my own issues. But the loathing be caused by comparison. It's also caused by isolation that I mentioned earlier. And man, oh man, does isolation build narratives. Because the only person you have to talk to is yourself. There's no outside perspective. It's just you and your thoughts. And you will find yourself very agreeable with what's presented to you. When we're removed from people, when we're removed from normal rhythms that can easily um, build up our faith, right, keep us in check, like, man, not acting a fool as much, we build narratives about other people and about what they think about us, right? Like, just you think about this year, all the issues that we can take different sides on. And you can see one kind of ambiguous social media posts, or one sentence or thing said passively and construct an entire narrative about that person, about that church, about that community. And it's not true, mostly. This leads to division with other people, but it also affects our relationship with God, right? Because this narrative that we build Can doubt his goodness. It results not just with people and how we blacklist them, how we leave communities and churches, being hostile to people who are actually trying to love you, but we have that same posture towards the Lord, cutting God out. Has this been your life this year? This year, I had the ambitious goal of reading through the entire Chronicles of Narnia series. Um, I just finished book three out of seven, so that won't happen. Um, I, I at one point, had listened through most of it on Audible, and it was good, but, man, I I just needed to read it, right? We we read enough of C.S. Lewis's quotes, like, all right, I actually need some context, and, man... Um, the, I mean these books are initially read for kids um, they're really written for adults really um, so the third book being uh, The Horse and His Boy it's in Narnia it takes place right after The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe which is like the most popular book <coughs> and the the story is really about um, this this group of Kind of companions, this boy, a girl, and two talking horses who are going on like a dangerous quest from uh, a dangerous southern empire into Narnia where they're going to have relief. Now, the boy is kind of the central character. His name's Shasta. And had a really tough childhood. I mean, he's still a child in the book, but was beaten um, by his father, who he, who he thought was his father, um, did not experience much of any kind of comfort, or to live like a boy should. And throughout the book, they go through trial after trial, um, being injured, uh, being hungry, and lack of sleep, and going through so much levels of uh, stress and anxiety. And it leads to this point where um, they're warning, Our Shasta is here to warn a kingdom, there's a kingdom between the southern empire and Narnia, and there's this invading force who's going to take out that kingdom. Shasta knows about it, and so he goes to warn them. He's able to warn them, but then in following them back to the castle, he gets lost in the fog. And at this point, he begins to vent everything that has gone wrong. And how he says, I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Right? And I think often that's what we say that I am the most unfortunate person. As he gets lost in this fog, and after he gets done venting, he notices that he's not alone. There is some presence alongside of him that has yet to speak, but he can hear it breathing. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope he had only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there was suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. It couldn't be imagination. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. If the horse had been any good, or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked everything on a breakaway and a wild gallop, but he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop. So he went on at a walking pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last, he could bear it no longer. Who are you, he said, scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you, are you a giant, asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice. But I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said, almost in a scream, You're not not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There. There. It said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives. And of all their dangers in Tashban, and about his night among the tombs, and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey, and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus, and also how very long it was since he had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion," said the voice. "What on earth do you mean? I just told you there were at least two the first night, and there were only one, or there was only one. But he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erevis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength a fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at night, at midnight to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus. It was I but what for, child, said the voice. I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you, said Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low, so the earth shook, and again, myself, loud and clear and gay, and then the third time, myself. Whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, And yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost. But a new, indifferent sort of trembling came over him, yet he felt glad too. The mist was turning from black to gray and from gray to white. This must have begun to happen some time ago, but while he had been talking to the thing, he had not been noticing anything else. Now the whiteness around him became a shining whiteness. His eyes began to blink. Somewhere ahead he could hear birds singing. He knew the night was over at last. He could see the mane and ears and head of his horse quite easily now. A golden light fell on them from the left. He thought it was the sun. He turned and saw pacing beside him, taller than the horse, a lion. The horse did not seem to be afraid of it, or else could not see it. It was from the lion that the light came. No one ever saw anything more terrible or beautiful. Luckily, Shasta had lived all his life too far south in Kalorman to have heard the tales that were whispered in Tashban about a dreadful Narnian demon that appeared in the form of a lion. And of course, he knew none of the true stories about Aslan, the great lion, the son of the emperor beyond the sea, the high king above all kings in Narnia. But after one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of the saddle and fell at its feet. He couldn't say anything, but he didn't want to say anything. And he knew he needn't say anything. The high king above all kings stooped towards him. Its mane and some strange and solemn perfume that hung about the mane was all around him. It touched his forehead with its tongue. He lifted his face, and their eyes met. Then instantly the pale brightness of the mist and the fiery brightness of the lion rolled themselves together into a swirling glory and gathered themselves up and disappeared. He was alone with the horse on a grassy hillside under a blue sky, and there were birds singing. Man, we need the same interaction with Jesus. I mean, first, I'm amazed at how one man could write a scene like that. But, two, he's stealing that from the bigger story of what Jesus does with us in our affliction. And that there's actually purpose. It's not God doing this for fun. It's not God bringing you through this just to torture you. He's doing this to form you and make you who he has called you to be. Because here's the thing with this story. that Though Aslan made this very clear to him, what happened was Aslan brought him through it and later Shasta was able to see more of the story and how it was actually prophesied over him as a baby that he would save his kingdom. And he later found out that he was the son of the king. It's a beautiful picture of what God is doing in us. Which leads us to a third and really only response that we need to have, and that is to walk forward into the furnace. Because Jesus has walked into it before us. And he's with us in it. Throughout all of Hebrews, you see this. Hebrews 2, for it was fitting for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 4, we see that Jesus sympathizes us in our trials. Hebrews 12 Therefore since we're surrounded by all these witnesses let us lay aside every weight and sin and look before us with full endurance to Jesus the one who has gone before us with great joy and has endured the cross its through the furnace that we have fruit it's through the furnace that we actually discover purpose there's purpose in that furnace and through it, some of this fruit that I can just barely scratch the surface of today is that he gives us a present joy. Not an abstract idea of what joy is, but an actual experience of joy here and now. First Samuel twelve twenty two. Man, if you haven't read this, you need to. I'm going to read it for you. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. And when He makes you a people, you experience His joy. He will never cast you out. As distant as you and I may feel, He will never cast you out. First Peter 1.7, Peter's talking about the furnace there. He's saying, it's all has it all has a purpose that though you may be tested by fire it's going to be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ he provides relief and will sustain you with his joy when he says come to you all who are weary i will give you rest it's a present joy And relief, Isaiah 44. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. Because he's the living water. Never runs dry. Always nourishing, always sustaining his people and providing what we lack. He's also providing a future hope. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, from Paul's perspective, he says, for this light, momentary affliction. A man who has been beaten and left for dead, who has experienced more trials than most of us will ever experience in our own lives, he says this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to not the things that are seen. Not the death, not the disease, not the trials. But to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. God is doing a work in us, family. And it hurts. At oftentimes. But take comfort that Jesus has made a way. As we just sang, He's made a way. He is with us. He is supplying. He is sympathizing. He is walking with us. He is filling us. He is leading us and guiding us. And so, to take away from this morning to walk in this. Let your prayers in the morning just be guided by this. Asking the Father what He thinks about you so that you stop listening to yourself. Stop. What does the Father think of you? And praying, even though it will hurt, praying, Jesus, make me more like you. Give me your perspective. Give me your endurance. Give me your joy, your boldness. And from that, we will see unity within the church body. Through that, we will see love and compassion overflow and manifest in ways we have never seen before. It starts there. And so with that, we're going to respond. We're going to go before the Lord. And in many cases for us, wrestle this morning. But for many of you, I think this is the time and place at the end of this year, not to say as Terry said, like 2021 is going to be my year, but to say at the end of this year, Lord, the this is the end of my comparison to other people. Lord, this is the end of my struggles, my sinful struggles, of how I give in to temptation. Lord, this is the end of my laissez-faire approach to faith. This is the end of me making excuses. This is the end of me forming a narrative that does not line up with what you say. And so we're going to give you time to pray. We're going to give you time to take communion and to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, His blood and body shed and broken for us. And it's through that that we have this life, that we have His Spirit, that we have this redemption. And we'll give an opportunity to give. We'll have the the text to give number up on the screen. and to respond in worship, to respond in singing his praises because, like we said, he's worthy. He alone is worthy. And if God has given you just a word of encouragement for the body this morning, um, we want to be able to deliver that. And so if you believe that God's given you that, um, Terry's going to be up here to to talk with you. Just bring it to him first and we'll take it from there. But um, the refining should be a place of encouragement. Um, To know that that God is is doing a work in you. You know, if you weren't being refined, you would kind of be second-guessing yourself. But to take heart in that. So, let's pray. Let's take it to the Lord. Father, we thank you this morning. Even though we come, maybe this morning, with discreet weakness and and frail hearts and weak hands and, and... we feel like our faith is either dwindled, we feel like we have no momentum, no motivation. We feel like we're, we're at a dead end in terms of where you're leading us. Or we have questions about what you're doing. Lord, we come before you to engage with you. We seek your face. We long for you to make Yourself known here in our lives right now. So Lord, would You speak over us the love that You've spoken over Your Son Jesus? Would You speak those truths? Would You speak those promises that You will never forsake us? You have not left us. You have not abandoned us. You are with us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and for the cross and for that sacrifice that has redeemed us and has made a way. So would we find hope in that today, for this morning, for this season, and for all eternity, Lord. Sustain us, keep us. In Jesus' name, amen.